this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners this is Brent Sutton welcome to the 83rd episode of the practice of learning teams podcast show on today's podcast I'm joined with my colleague Diane Achan and we catch up with a friend of the pod Rosa Antonio Carrillo in episode 45 of the pod I called Rosa the first lady of safety leadership and that title is true today as it was last year her 2019 book the relationship factor in safety leadership is a great reminder about the need to humanize safety and the core eight beliefs about human nature that are common to leaders who successfully communicate that safety is important whilst meeting business results. In today's pod, we talk about how things have changed or not changed over the last 12 months, and we get some special insight into Rosa's new book titled Safety Leadership Strategies, being released in 2023. So please sit back and enjoy this extended episode of the pod for the holiday season with Rosa, Diane and myself. Welcome everyone and today is one of our uh, special holiday season podcasts and I'm joined today for the second time from Rosa Carrillo and the author of The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership about achieving success through employee engagement. And also for the first time, I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Diane Archan as well. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a chat with you, Rosa, about how, how things have changed for you during the pandemic. Because, you know, when I look at your book and I think about what you wrote in 2019 about what we're facing today, how just important that engagement with our people, our frontline people is. So how's it all been going for you? Well, it's uh, it it's good. Uh, the pandemic was was tough. Being uh, reading every day about how much people were suffering, especially our healthcare workers and the people who couldn't get uh, the right kind of medical care for various reasons, was very, it was very very tough. And the silver lining for me was Zoom suddenly I was meeting people all over the world that I would have never have gotten to meet. I was asked to present virtually in places where they wouldn't have asked me to present because they couldn't afford to fly me out there. Uh, so I, uh, it was, for me, it was a fantastic opportunity and I felt much more globally connected as a result of that experience. So the isolation turned into a plethora of new relationships it was wonderful and yeah. and isn't that great how we can see an opportunity even you know when things are in that sort of deficit model that there's still an opportunity and and of, and of course um you know I, i'm super looking forward to actually meeting up with you in late january when we're in la because it's going yeah. to be my first sort of post-pandemic tour and uh, catching up with the likes of, you know, uh, Tom McDaniels and Todd Conklin and Eric Honagel and Jeff Lithin, just a whole grade of people. Um, so, and I think, you know, I agree with you, we've forged a whole lot of relationships over the last two years. Yes. And, and to finally meet in person just is really like the icing on the cake. It is, isn't it? I, I did a session in person with someone that I'd only talked to on Zoom for two years. <laughs> we saw each other, we embraced as if we had been, you know, <laughs> closest of friends for years. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise, normally you'd be you'd be seeking some sort of protection order yeah. if that exactly. ever happened in real life. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> You know, so, it's uh, it, it also really made me uh, realize or become, I guess, more confident in my assessment that uh, about the long distance connection, that it is possible to connect with people uh, psychologically and almost as the uh, quantum theory would have us 
believe in entanglement and that we're not that separate. We only think we are. We're really quite connected. And all we have to do is let ourselves um, make those connections. So that was very exciting too. Yeah. And look, I think it's just a different type of learning. So, so I think, you know, the, the things that we learn from face to face, the things that we learn remote are slightly different, but they can still both be very, very powerful. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So, but a lot of people said, you know, you can't achieve the same outcomes. And, and I think that's just evidence. If I think about Todd's works, that's just evidence of how resilient and adaptable we can be. Amen. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. There's a reason why we're still around. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, so from your point of view, if you think about, about back to your book in 2019, mm -hmm. about, you know, the reasons you published it and the aspirations that you've had, what do you, what do you think's changed between then and now? What have been your thoughts about that? Well, I don't think anything has changed. It's still the same uh, issues of lack of trust, lack of psychological safety, maybe and more pronounced uh, since COVID because we really uh, heard a lot about the inequities uh, with the indispensable workers, right? That had to go to work every day and risk their lives being ex uh, exposed to the virus, and yet they are getting the lowest salaries. Uh, so we had to confront the fact that we really need every level of the organization in order to be successful. But uh, I think that we still, and you know, I heard from a lot of employees, frontline employees that were in that category that you know, people throw lunches for us and they call us indispensable workers and we're, they, you know, they recognize us, but they don't really treat us any differently. They still don't listen to us. They still don't implement our ideas. So it, um, it didn't feel really true for them that, that we were um, appreciating their efforts. And I think that came through very clearly in the healthcare area uh, where nurses and doctors were, were at the front lines, risking their life every day and not getting the kind of support, psychological, mental health, uh, let alone resources. They were completely inadequately, inadequately resourced. So we really have to, we get an opportunity to really see where we need to step up if we're really going to live up to saying that people are our best asset, they're, they're our most valuable asset. We certainly don't treat people that way. We didn't in 2019 and we, we really still don't, but I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful because one of the things that happened during the great resignation was that people began to realize, oh, I might have to start to treat my staff a little better because there's not an unending supply of people that are willing to put up with, with these conditions. I don't know if you guys experience that at all on your side of the. Uh, Look, we, we, we have, we, we've gone through these periods of obviously lack of resource. Um, mm -hmm. We use the analogy. If you, if you've got a pulse, you can forget a job. Right. Right. <laughs> So and and we're going through that period of what we call hyperinflation, where cost yes. of living is yes. going out of proportion, and governments are trying to put a break in the economy to try and bring it back down. Um, but also even just that language that of people are the biggest assets. For you know, assets are things that can be bought, That's assets true. things that can be sold, or assets can be disposed of. And it's really yeah it's not the best word but it's about the closest they come can, to <laughs> I, look, I agree because you know during the yeah. pandemic it's simply reinforced that systems are brittle and yes. humans are adaptable mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and everyone did the best they could given the high level of uncertainty yes and, and I think a lot of people are fatigued around uncertainty and they are looking for that certainty 
And if I think about your work, you know, engagement actually helps give us certainty because yes, we feel belonged. Yeah, and well, I think we've learned a lot. Uh, people are talking about it a little bit more about the need to belong, inclusion, psychological safety. The other trigger right prior to COVID and even during COVID were um, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that spread across the world. And we got a lot of support all over the world because the US isn't the only place where these inequities exist, although we, we role model them for the rest of the world, but unfortunately <laughs> they exist everywhere. Um, and uh, I, that was another little ray of, of light because suddenly the whole diversity and inclusion movement came to the forefront and a lot of companies began to put efforts into looking at how can we make our organizations more diverse, more equitable, and how can we give more opportunities? So that's uh, that that's really powerful. And, and I think what we need to be able to do is sustain it going forward. So, so the principles in my book that I talked about, which is really the you know, how we think about human nature, what we believe in, what is our philosophy about people? Uh, it goes back to theory Y and theory X. Do we believe that people are willing to contribute, that they will contribute the best of their ability when asked and when treated correctly? Or do we believe that people are basically lazy and will try to get away with anything that they can? Uh, and it's not to say that it's 100% that everybody will contribute, but that's at least 80%. Uh, in my experience, I've always had the 80-20 where 80% of people are, if you if you respect them, if you give them autonomy, if you work with them, more than 80% in my experience will begin to contribute and to perform. Whereas focusing all of our rules and all of the inflexibility focuses on that 20% uh, and ignores the 80%, right? So my book was an attempt to say, hey, you know, wake up to the fact that you have the power to wake up the high potential in people. You, you have the power to support that and develop it as a human being, no matter where you are. If you're a supervisor, if you're, you know, a, a manager or an executive, or even like you and I, I mean, we don't have any position of authority, but we can go into a room and people can feel good that we're there because we treat them with respect and dignity uh, and listen, it, it's so simple. It's so simple. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. That, that diversity of thought that is now out there is so much more prevalent I've found since you know we were coming out of the pandemic. But um, it is simple. But I still find sometimes, you know, that people aren't trusting of that. And I think, you know, when we we talk about just staying in that curiosity and asking people and letting them fill that space, I'm not sure, like you're saying, Rosa, it's this we still the message still needs to get out there. Um, it's slowly changing and that's great to see. But um, yeah, for something so simple, it seems so hard for organizations and people in organizations. Yeah, well, and I agree with you because so uh, it's all fear based. If I approach you, I don't, and I don't know you. There's a very high chance that you are you might reject me or push me aside. And I wrote about that in my book as well. That we fundamentally live from that perspective because most of us were had some kind of trauma in our childhood or growing up where we experienced that, and it's very hard to let that go unless you decide, you have to make a personal decision to take on a growth mindset and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna to have to take a risk if I really wanna become a leader or make a difference or, or accomplish more in my work. Uh, and I really tried in my book to encourage people to experiment and take those steps um, because, and by giving them the science behind it, the neuroscience, there's a lot of, of uh, evidence out there that we have these superpowers to connect with others that we don't use because we're afraid to. 
absolutely that that fear element isn't it like um Mm-hmm. People would, would prefer to stay in the fear than learn and improve sometime because that anxiety and that that threat of not being not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Yes, and that's why our two big uh, stars, uh, Brene Brown, with her work in vulnerability, is fifty one million views of her video. <laughs> Women are in the forefront, and then we have Amy Edmondson you know, talking about, you know, what it is that we're afraid of, uh, which is to look ridiculous, to look stupid. And why are we afraid of that? Because we've experienced it so much in the past. So there's a lot. I don't get upset with people anymore. I just take a breath and say, all right, this person uh, just isn't ready, isn't ready to take that risk. Uh, And I have to look for clients that are are ready because nothing's yeah. going to happen unless you're willing to take that risk. Yeah. And you're in that space too, Rosa. You put you you, you mentioned Renee and you and, and Amy Evanson, but um you you as well in terms of your book and you know your insights. So thank well, you. Well thank you for that. <laughs> and just that conversation um you know, I think management gets confused sometimes about the difference between supporting workers and work groups versus managing. And, you know, what I've seen is that if we can get um, a core number of the people in a work group exhibiting this cultural practice of, of you know, you know, asking better questions or, you know, being more open, it's, it's really interesting how the rest of the group actually gets pulled up as a result. What do you mean the risk gets pulled up? Well, the, the, <clears throat> so the, the rest of the group. So, so you know, if, if, if we implement some sort of new way of doing something, for it to become embedded, we need people that are going to lead it and be involved yeah. at that front line. Yeah. And even the ones that are staying back and, and are just questioning it or not feeling comfortable, once that becomes that common cultural practice, oh, I see. They they want to belong. Yes, yes, and that's the whole thing that you just have to get the influencers going on it yeah. because then everybody does it to belong. It, it's it's a human nature, right? Yeah, and then then it just becomes the normal way we do things around here. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think the word civility is becoming very popular because really all we're talking about is being civil with one another. Uh, I'll tell you, like, I, I mean, I'm I'm talking about this all over the place, and I say, okay, here's here's a, a really uh, practical approach. Say good morning when you see someone, and look them in the eye, use their name, ask them how they are, and you will begin to transform your culture. Why? because people start to feel that you care about them. And if they feel you care about them, they start wanting to support you. And then that's when the vulnerability comes in. Are you willing to say, hey, I really need your help on this, or I really need your support on this. I don't have all the answers. That's the next step. And then people just, they start jumping in. It's, it's, um, it's, it's human nature. Yeah, so, so, so I think... You know, how, how do we get organizations to support that rather than feel that they have to own it or manage it? Right. Yeah, that's a big weight on your shoulders if you have to manage it or own it, right? I have so many, um, like, safety professionals. I can't go out there and ask people what they need or they want because then they end up asking me for things I can't give them. <laughs> and I don't want to have to say no or... <laughs> I they asked me for a thousand dollar ergonomic chair. How, where the heck am I going to get a thousand dollar ergonomic chair, right? Um, and so beginning that education that really it isn't giving them the ergonomic chair that is going to change the uh, culture because you could give out a thousand ergonomic chairs tomorrow and not change a thing. Mm-hmm. Think about it. What is it that is actually going to create the change? It's going to be your connection to someone that asked for your help and that you provided what they need or even just listened. The practice of listening in and of itself is transformational. 
and the thing is, you know, um, that whole thing of we, we call it, you know, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Storytelling mm-hmm. is embedded in every culture around the world. You can cross cultural barriers through the notion of storytelling. Absolutely. What made you think of storytelling? Uh, because people say to me, I, I struggle on how to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. And we say, share a story. And and for instance, I don't know if you've seen the work we've been doing with, with Jeff Lith and Todd around the, our 4Ds concept of, of how to trigger work conversations, just think, asking people, you know, and the work that you do, can you share with me a, a situation or a story when it didn't make sense to you? Can you share something with me when it, when it was harder than it should have been? Can you share with me something when it's different from what it should be? Or share with me something that didn't feel right? Yes, yes. Those are great questions. And people, and they'll share lots of stories. They will, right? And, and I guess that's what, you know, you said, um, Rosa, like we want to connect with people. It's the relationship factor. And we're wired to connect with people. And we've done it through centuries in terms of stories. And, yes. you know, it's, it's almost a, a lost art being able to take the time to listen to someone's story and share stories to find that connection. Yeah, maybe it's part of that. Uh, you compare yourself to others like, oh, I could never tell a good story or I could, I don't have any stories. People don't realize that that stories are really uh, sharing personal experiences. You could tell a story about how your mother made you breakfast and that felt good, or maybe she didn't make you breakfast and that didn't feel good. But um, yeah, it's the concept of we're not good enough. So for me, it goes back to a lack of self-confidence, lack of self-esteem, the fact that a lot of our people that step into supervisor or management positions didn't have the kind of recognition, belonging, respect, uh, that they deserved, and so it becomes very hard to give it to others. I mean, most children are not raised uh, in that way, not in the old days, perhaps more so now. I, I, I feel that parents now are, are much more cognizant of respecting their children and uh, their wishes and treating them in a way where they get love and belonging, whereas in the old days, it was more of you should be seen and not heard. Uh, so where do where do you turn to um, if you feel you're not appreciated or if you don't feel belong, that you belong or included the way you need to be to do your job? Uh, where do where can one turn to to get that? Because you know we're adults, so we're expected to do it for ourselves, right? But most of us aren't very good at it. I know I, I wasn't. It took me about 70 years. Yet it's interesting. <laughs> Good friendships are built on that notion. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, yes. So if I think about my friendships, and, and mm-hmm. I don't have a huge number of friendships, but if I think about those friendships that I have, um, I may not have spoken to a person for an extended period of time, but when I speak to them, I'm picking up from where I left off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, have that too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think sometimes how we do that in our workplace, how we do that with our friends, how we do that with our family or our loved ones are all slight variations of each other because you can be more vulnerable to your close friends, you can be more vulnerable to your loved ones. And, you feel more. You feel more comfortable. That yeah, mm-hmm. because that vulnerability you might consider to be a weakness from mm-hmm. an organizational point of view, particularly if your immediate leader is, you know, more dictatorial by nature, or you know, critical, very yeah, critical, misogynist, whatever. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, <laughs> we'll, we'll avoid politics. But um, yeah. 
Hopefully they're all in prison by now. Oh. <laughs> or soon. Or soon. Or soon. But I agree with you. Once you can start that, once those gates open, it flows. Yeah, it does. It does. And we have a concept, we call it the Trojan Mouse, which mm-hmm. is getting that little voice to start. And that little voice becomes a bigger voice over time. So it's With not practice. about, absolutely, uh, and reflection, because reflection really is that, that, that key sort of component. So, and I'm always surprised about when I meet a group of people for the first time, you know, it's, we always judge. And I'm always surprised, considered to be surprised about the ones that did a lot better than what I perceived or, or thought. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't be surprised anymore because you look for that light bulb moment in their eyes. And mm-hmm. once that connection has been made, it all starts just to open up. Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I, I haven't met you personally, but of the conversations that I've had, you you have a, a way of making people feel comfortable to say what they, you know, what to take a risk and say things that are on their mind because you, know, you use humor, you yep. use appreciation, and and those are those are very good tools. And you just, and if you don't have them naturally, you, you have to practice. I, I remember one day, cause I've always, I was, I, I, I still feel I am shy, but I've, I've grown to uh, reach out more. What, and it happened one day when I, I walked into a room for networking and those are things that I absolutely dread, right? You're, you're going into a room to network. And the last thing you want to do is walk over to a group of people that you don't know, and they seem to be having a great conversation. Uh, and so it dawned on me that I could look for the people who were also alone and gather them and make mm-hmm. and make a group. And I, why didn't I think of that sooner? It, it gave me a role, which was to make other people feel included and belonging. And I made myself feel included in that way. But well, look, for, for me, a, a seminal book is one that you may be familiar of, Humble Inquiry. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Yeah. yeah. But you're yeah. right, it requires practice. It does, um, and resilience, um, although that's such an overused word, but I mean, there's no, you, you just have to keep getting up, and the people that end up winning are in a in the Olympics are the ones who lost a lot of times, but that kept going until, until they won. And I I get lots of inspiration from listening to people like that, but I have to admit it's exhausting. (laughs) And sometimes I just want to say, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that. I I don't want to struggle anymore. Do you ever get that way? Um, Yes. More often than what people think. Um, but for, for me, um, uh, these podcasts are a part of good therapy. Yes, they are. They so, are. So thank you. People. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Now, so you have a new book coming out sometime next year. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I'm very excited about it. It took a long time to finalize the title, but it's um, Safety Leadership strategies safety leadership strategies how leaders bring out extraordinary results from ordinary people one of um, the main points was that uh, that what we expect from people they live up to those expectations they perform according to those expectations and so as a leader what i have to do is work on my perceptions of getting uh, clearing the bias of listening with more intention, following up on people's ideas and conversations. So it's all about me working on myself and in order to become a better leader, that it's not a people problem. <laughs> it's, it's not external, it's internal. 
and that it takes a certain kind of person to be willing to take that on because uh, there's it, it's not easy. It's not easy to um, take on that kind of responsibility. But the people that are willing to do it get great great benefits in terms of the performance in their organizations. There's lots of stories behind that. There's lots of stories available of how that works. And I think that's, you know, great leadership, isn't it, Rosa? Those, those, those ones that are, you know, willing to be prepared to look into themselves and say, well, how, what do I need to do? What are my biases to, to change? Um, that's the difference, I think, from just being a good leader to a great leader. Um, I know yes. the ones that I look back on and I go, well, these are the leaders that really impacted me were ones that were so attuned and were so giving of their time. Yes, and they're extraordinary listeners. When you're in their presence, you feel like they're they're there for you. They're not distracted. Uh, it's a very powerful experience to be in the presence of someone like that. And Rosa, does the book ex does the book explore um, how leaders sort of can go along that continuum, or does it give any insights? Because, you know, we, we, we do a lot of, you know, coaching and mentoring to mm -hmm. support people on that continuum. So Yes, it's a continuum. Well, I uh, start with, my one of my premises is that the more we understand about the social aspects of the workplace and the psych social psychological aspects of the workplace, uh, group dynamics, how people are impacted, the, the more we increase our ability to react uh, to situations in, in a meaningful way and also in a way that, that can impact things positively. This is a topic that is not in, taught in business school. We're, we're, we don't know uh, that people, until now, people never talked about psychological safety and it's been around since 1965. Mm -hmm when Ed Schein first brought it up as the ground level condition for learning and changing. So we, we go about expecting people to undergo these major transformations. We've set up these initiatives, quality initiatives, safety culture initiatives, whatever, that are asking people to change in very fundamental ways without understanding what we're asking them to do. A great example of that is this whole thing about getting uh, employees to speak up. So I go into great detail about what you're asking someone to do when you ask them to speak up, speak up, which has overcome a tremendous fear of rejection that they've had probably all their lives. And yet uh, you've probably overlooked the fact that they are not listened to at work. So why would they speak up? when managers aren't listening. That, that, yeah. That's why for us, you know, the whole notion of a learning team is mm -hmm. more about workers being able to speak in. Because yeah. they're speaking in as a group. Mm -hmm. They're not needing the permission of the organization to speak up. Yeah, it, it, and most of them are going like, that's your job to take care of those problems. It's not my job. <laughs> You're getting paid to take those risks. I'm not. Mm -hmm. and, and how often do you see a supervisor or a manager speak up or even an executive speak up in, in their group and say, hey, you guys are on the wrong track. That I have to wait a long time to meet somebody who will do that in the exec, on the executive committee level. Well, they have a saying, is it called what, career limiting? Yes, it's career limiting. And I should know I've gotten fired frequently. <laughs> uh, one of my mentors, I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter Block. He wrote Flawless Consulting. I mean, he, he's very, very successful, very well to do. And, and he said to me when I was a student, he said, you have to aim as a consultant, you have to get fired at least twice a year. Otherwise, you're not doing your job. <laughs> Your job is to say what nobody else will say. And uh, yeah, that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of guts to do that. I I, I would agree because, you know, um, 
I don't know how you feel, Diane, but a lot of the work that we do, our job is to get out of the organisation, not necessarily embed ourselves in for life, it's to actually help them understand what does sustainability look like. And it's about identifying those that can then coach and mentor others to sustainability. So it's, you know, for, for us, an engagement is actually, is how we create our exit plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my, my book too covers, you know, how do you get yourself to a place where uh, you um, can speak up without all of the anxiety that accompanies it because that becomes you get you reach a point of burnout and I and I was there in my 40s as a consultant I was burned out because I had to it's like a a struggle with yourself you should speak up you should speak up and then you either don't then you feel bad about it or you do and you get negative feedback Um, so that's kind of another aspect another aspect of my book is how people of color there's a hierarchy of who's listened to and who's not listened to and women uh, of color are at the bottom of the hierarchy with black women being at at the very bottom Uh, I'm a Latina so I'm right a little bit not much but a little bit above that and I got a lot of insights reading that research because and give myself some credit I had to overcome a lot of socialization to begin to speak my mind. Uh, and I know a lot of my Asian colleagues tell me about their socialization process, even though they are more outspoken than Latinas and Blacks, they still have to go through that same thought process of, uh, of overcoming the fear. Think about how much human potential we learn, we lose in organizations due to that constraint. Uh, how much time people spend weighing up. Should I say this? Should I not say this? I'd I'd say a a lot, but it's something that organizations either can't measure or don't want to measure. It's one of those classic null sets, isn't it? Well, I, I spelled it out in my book. I said, if someone like myself, I can say that I'm intelligent because I went through the universities and I passed all the tests. So I must be intelligent, okay? Um, creative. I'm a creative person. I've, I've been publishing in the business world since 1993. If people won't listen to me, who are they going, who else are they not listening to in their organizations? Because I'm not saying woe is me. I'm saying you guys are crazy. Uh-huh. You are missing out on what? What? I mean, it'd be impossible if we did the iceberg. Probably all the people they're not listening to are below the waterline, right? I find it quite interesting, you know, having moved away from being so. I decided for a long time just to do consultancy and then I decided to move back into being an employee because I really wanted to have part of that ownership. What I found was really interesting is being an employee, I lost part of my voice. So as a consultant, you could come in and you brought with you this outside perspective and that was valued. But then you become an employee and suddenly we don't want to listen to you to you now because we'll actually pay more money for someone to come in and tell us probably what you already know. But for some reason, we value them more. Um, and, I, and I think that's, when I think about that experience, um, that bias, that almost subconscious belief of organisations just inhibits so much potential in that element. And, you know, I did get frustrated I left to be honest, because I had no voice in that space. So, yeah. And and so you're another good example of somebody highly intelligent that's being underutilized. Um, Start talking about the underutilized resources in in your organizations. How much is that costing your organization? And a great example, another important chapter in my book is the importance of the health and safety uh, function 
generally uh, they're not considered a, a core business process. So uh, during COVID, they were in high demand, but a lot of people are saying now that COVID's over, it's starting to go back into the way it was before where they're not being called into those meetings anymore. I had, and when you're not part of the strategic conversation, how can you contribute strategically, Brent? Because then they tell you you have nothing relevant to say. You have nothing relevant to say, Brent, but by, by the way, don't come to, to the next meeting because um, you're too expensive. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think once again, safety in some ways created its own paradigm because it, it focused on being about compliance, about meeting obligations, about meeting duties, not about creating value, not about creating um, opportunities for improvement. It really put itself into that light of safety is something that you need to do rather than want to do. Well, it is something you need to do because of regulations and, yeah. and there are compliance aspects. And I would say that that's true because we socialized them people that way we educated them in that way so we're, we're just kind of seeing the result of our um yeah but the, companies companies need to sell things to earn income and make a return yes uh, uh hr needs to pay people there are a lot of things that we need to do but but things like sales and quality they are seen as being a valuable component about how the business grows. Yeah. So, you know, how do, how do we turn safety from being seen in that deficit model? Well, from what you're saying, the, from what you're saying is that the first step is for uh, safety and health advisors to see themselves differently. If there's a large enough, a large component of advisors who see themselves as compliance and that that's their job, then I don't think they're going to change. But I, I come across a great many who see themselves as leaders, actually. And as I said before, leadership is a choice. Nobody has to call you a leader. You can begin to act like one whenever you choose to. Uh, and and so I've met a lot of them, and they regularly feel uh, excluded, unappreciated, unheard, because they are, um, I guess, labeled right. Here's here's your corner over here, and then they don't invite you to the kinds of conversations and meetings where you could pick up the kind of information where you could contribute to the value of the organization. I mean, I'm, I'm going through, I just had an experience that really opened my eyes in that regard, even as a consultant. We have a budget for the project, right? And we, we were running over. So we had some, uh, the project leader said, so, you know, you can't go to those meetings anymore because, um, you know, we can't, we're not going to be able to sustain that till the end of the year. We have to wait till the new budget comes in. And suddenly I found myself unable to give any counseling or coaching because I didn't know what was happening in the organization. And I thought to myself, ah, <laughs> there you go. You know, if you don't include people then how can you expect them to make the organization better or contribute to innovation or any of those things? Yep. So I think it's a two-way two -way street there. I think safety professionals can begin to, to seek out those opportunities, but beware that you might get rejections at first. Sure, but that's the analogy that there's always a budget restriction when it's going right. There's no budget when it goes wrong. There you go. Yep. So there where did that go. money come from? <laughs> do they have like a little box under the bed that they pull out? Um, no. it's, it's just that it's our perception, it's that narrative. Um, hence why a lot of work that we do, the, the reason why we stay in what I call the misery end of the market where it's gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is because um, they will invest to learn when it's go wrong 
and seldom do I get asked the question, oh, how, how much do you charge? It'll be, when can you help? Right. And, th- and I think that's just whole notion of that value proposition. But, but if, I th- if I think about the modern safety professional, um, we, we need to be seeing ourselves as um, facilitators of change. Mm-hmm. We need to see ourselves as being coaches of change and mentors of change. And what we need to do is we need to share those stories of change. Yes. And if we don't share those stories, how can the organization see the value? And and when I say share, I'm not talking about putting up a poster and saying, I'm the world's greatest person. That's not sharing. I'm talking about how can we, if we do a, if we do a piece of work, we engage with a bunch of workers. When I run a learning team, I always ask, what, what did the workers learn from getting together? What did the organization learn from getting together? And what did I learn from the process? And that's what I share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that, that becomes the story of what we call operational learning. And I've been working with Jeff Lith and we've come up with this um, thing we call the three L's about learning and sharing. And that you that when you share, you share locally, you share lateral, across, mm-hmm. and you share level up. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. sharing must be a deliberate action. Yes. And it's been really interesting how organizations, by taking it as a deliberate action, how it spreads. Mm-hmm. And and I know it's, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but once sharing becomes a virus. Absolutely. It becomes infectious. And yeah. then we all want to start sharing. Well, exactly. And that's what happens when... Um, when you share your story of when you become vulnerable and are willing to talk about your mistakes or your near misses, then why, you know, other people start to talk about it. It's contagious. You've made it safe for others. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas when it goes wrong and the regulators come in, their whole investigation process is to find those stories. Mm -hmm. And when it's gone wrong, those people are in an emotional, vulnerable state. Yes. And, you know, I'm always concerned how more we are traumatizing people after it's gone wrong by asking them to repeat those stories. Boy, I just finished settling. um, I had a terrible, terrible auto accident. I had to repeat that story Every time I repeated what happened to me, I felt worse and worse. Yeah. What And what was the value in doing that? To torture me. Yep. <laughs> yep. They, they wore me down. Yep. <laughs> That's right. So, um, so new book coming out. Sit on a more up note, though. Don't let that be the. Oh no, no, that's all right. Um, and, and this you'll episode, edit that out. <laughs> and this episode will have um, free free vouchers from CVS for um, anti anxiety medications will be offered <laughs> in this in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but once I, again, I want to talk about how I overcame everything, but it wouldn't be true. <laughs> that's right. And so, thank you for being vulnerable because. It's yeah, life. It's it's just life. what life is like in, yeah, in that way. It's always, it's always a pleasure chatting with you and spending time. Thank you. Oh, look, hey, call it group therapy. <laughs> group and therapy. Think, yeah. it's, it's three of us going out to 100,000 people. That's okay. It's our little secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully somebody will hear it and say, well, if they can, if they can live with it and, and, move on and be successful, then I can do it. Absolutely. There's, there's this saying, look, that, that's crazy at a whole different level. We're, we're good. So, Rosa, once again, look, thank you very much for spending your time today. Um, lovely catching up. Looking forward to seeing you um, in January, late January. Um, yes. This episode's going to go out as part of our um, holiday season. So it's, it's going to be great. And 
please carry on with your great work. It's it's really inspirational. Oh, thank you, and you you as well. You both. I'm looking forward to reading the the new book, Rosa. Oh, thank you. Looking forward to seeing it myself. you listeners for being part of this podcast we would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback become part of the community of practice with learning teams go to www.learningteamscommunity.com support the authors of the practice of learning teams Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the new view. Please visit the store, and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.